Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to In The Drink, the radio show that is all about the most delicious things to drink, the people who bring them to you, and absolutely nothing about the game of golf. Today. <laughs> uh, I'm super excited today. I'm here with my very good friend, um, Richard Betts. Richard is a master sommelier, a, uh, ultra, an ultra marathon runner, uh, the founder of many wine labels and... Uh, the really spectacular Sombra Tequila. He used to be the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Sombra Mezcal. Uh, he used to be the, the beverage director of uh, multiple restaurants. Uh, uh, so I'm um, just super excited. This is definitely one of the, uh, one of the stars of the, of the whole beverage industry. And uh, usually when we, uh, when we get started, we, uh, we, we ask questions for the first 15 minutes or so and then do a little taste in the end. But uh, it's early in the morning here in Bushwick, and Richard's already poured some mezcal into uh, into our classes. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for being here today. I'm super excited to have you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that kind introduction. <laughs> well, you're uh, for sure one of the one of the nicest and uh, most accomplished people in the industry. So it's it's super exciting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about the sombra mezcal that uh, that I'm staring at? And and don't stare at it, Joe. Okay. Drink it. There we go. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So. Yeah, man. I'm uh, I'm super focused on mezcal um, for a couple reasons. I think first we're all really very much informed by the environment where we grow up, right? And so my dad grew up in upstate New York, and when he was hay mistering as a kid, that meant Boone's Farm, right? And I grew up in the Sonoran Desert, and when we hay mistered, it meant Bacanora, and Bacanora is just Sonoran mezcal. So uh, full on moonshine, but, you know, made similar to tequila, but uh, from the state of Sonora. Uh, and so th- I think there's that early bug that bit. And then fast forward, gosh, almost 30 years and uh, no, not that many, 20 some years. And I'm in Aspen doing the wine list with Little Nell, uh, which is fun. And Aspen's a party and you like a nightlife. And um, there's there's lots of lots of that um, to avail yourself of, and I'm a big fan of uppers. So everything on the back bar I think is pretty interesting, but in terms of being up and uh, you know, feeling motivated and psyched to play, I think that all comes down to agave-based spirits. I think they affect you differently. You know, they're uppers, not downers. You know, I, I love bourbon, but it's just like put me in a corner, you know, I'll just fall asleep and after one. But, uh, you know, after one uh, shot of mezcal, I'm ready for 12 more. So I decide... Um, in 2005, I'm going to start poking around and uh, see what this is really all about. And at this point, you know, I know a little bit about mezcal, but more about tequila just because that's what we drink here, right? Or what we did drink here. And so I go to tequila and, and uh, check it out and end up being very disappointed. Um, you know, at this point, I'm already I'm making wine and uh, wine's a big part of my life. And, and when I think about wine, I think about 
sense of place. I mean, to me, that's my everything. People people say all the time, like, oh, what's the greatest one you ever had? You know, I expect you to say something stupid, like 45 Romani Conti or something dumb that no one will ever drink. But I always answer that question with, it's any wine that tastes like a, a place, right? I mean, in every glass, there should be people. And let, let's talk about this yeah. place that uh, yeah. Mezcal's made it. I kind of think of, of mezcal like uh, like like Bushwick, where, where we are. <laughs> you know, it's something that uh, you know people didn't think too highly of mezcal, especially when you when you started making it. But now it's like everyone everyone wants to get in on on, on the mezcal. Bushwick is uh, just an exciting, exuberant place to, to be. It's where it's where we're filming this this radio show. Um, but what about two thousand five? At that time, I, I don't think mezcal was was in its its moment the way it is no. now at all what about what about uh what about made you think that that was the place so it comes back to this idea of sense of place so if if mezcal's bushwick tequila's you know upper east side and so i went to the upper east side first because that's just what i knew and so we go there and you're looking around and and when you want that sense of place you don't find it in tequila you know they've done a great job marketing particularly to us here in north america but Everything that made it what it once was, they got rid of in 1860 when tequila became tequila. It used to just, the bottles used to say just vino de mezcal, and they were from tequila and Oaxaca and Durango and whatever. And the tequila guys said, oh, well, we want this to be the center of mezcal production in Mexico. And the government actually said no. Um, they said, okay, then we're going to be tequila. And when they did that, they legislated um, that you can only use blue agave, not because it's the best, but because it grows the biggest and the fastest and it's the softest, so it's the easiest for the humidor to work with. And they stopped working on heritage slopes and started working on the plains, where the piñas are now three times the size. And they stopped roasting in the ground with fire and started roasting in ovens. And now the ovens are, are largely gone, and you work in an autoclave, which is like a rice cooker, which is gross. So essentially, I'm there looking at vodka being made from piñas. And that's not interesting. There is no sense of place. So I'm like, I'm out. And uh, Sounds like there are a lot of parallels with wine. You see uh, regions like like Suave, for instance, where they have these fantastic set of hills and Mm -hmm. you can make really characterful wines on on the hills. But the majority of producers said, well, those are really difficult to work. Let's let's plant it on the flat plains where we can get really big, fat grapes filled with juice and they can get really ripe. But it it doesn't have as much character. It doesn't have as much of that that sense of place. Totally. That was a big flaw of the DOCG system is that it legislated those flats into the into the Appalachian, so crazy, and it, and it's the exact same thing, really, uh, with tequila and mezcal. So, so we bail, we're out, and uh, we taste everything from everywhere, and um, find our way to Oaxaca, where it starts to to make the most sense. It starts to it's it's smart, but it's also delicious, and there's a very rich tradition and a heritage. Um, and when you land, you're at five thousand feet in Oaxaca City, and from there we just went up. Um, you know, the, Oaxaca is at the confluence of three valleys, and you can either go out to the ocean six hours away in the car, or you can just climb up one of the hills um, and get way, way, way up in the Oaxacan Sierra. And we found the higher that you go, the more detailed and pretty the spirit gets um, for a lot of reasons. Some of it's uh, exposure to sun, some of it's ripeness, some of it's the climate, some of it's the fuel source, um, in ter- what you use for the roast. So, um, you know, obviously smoke is a big part of, of what you find in mezcal um, and that comes from the actual the roasting that you roast in the ground right we you know dig a pit build a fire cover the fire with rocks put the piñas in this pit cover that with banana leaves and then that whole thing gets buried under the earth and that's how you take the starch and you make a sugar two days later but at uh, lower elevations that's all done with mesquite which is really very sappy wood um, so it makes a very smoky fire um, and then consequently makes a very smoky spirit which 
that's important that the process be seen. But I think, you know, for us being um, at 8,000 feet in the Sierra, there's no mesquite. It's all oak and sino. And so it burns cleaner and hotter. And so it still gets that smoky quality, but it doesn't run it over. You know, it's it's actually like too much oak on your Chardonnay, right? Where that's it just and that's like exactly that. where my mind was going. It's yeah. like if you have a really oak Chardonnay, you can't taste any of the fruit. You can't taste the place that it comes from. All you taste is that oak. And uh, one of the things that, that I love about Sombra is that you do get that, that characteristic smokiness, which I think is just a marker for, for Mezcal, but you still get all the all the flavors of, of the agave. Um, and I'm not really familiar with it, with this land. So what's specific, what kind of terroir markers do you pick out for this high elevation? So part of it, you know, again, starts with the reeling back of the smoke. And then because when we, um, this is the second village we've worked in, and, and this is where it will stay. This is where we've made our home. We started in another village, a little bit lower elevation, and the, the canyons are a little bit more... Um, you're not at the top, so you're, mm-hmm. if you imagine you know, a V and you're farther down into the V, your aspect of the sun is really diminished. And so now we're at the top of the Sierra, and um, your aspect to the sun is greatly increased. And so we find that the, the bricks, I mean, you, really, you measure the bricks in the roast just like we do in, in wine, they're really um, exaggerated, almost 15% higher than where we were before. And to me, that gives us a sort of a pineapple tart to tan thing. It gives it a a viscosity and a richness and an impression of sweetness, although it's totally dry, um, that I think comes from that elevation. Okay, so you recognized uh, that there, there's there's quality, there's something interesting going on in Mezcal, and you know, this is a, a question that I that I, I like to ask sommeliers and beverage directors, and basically the question goes along the lines of, what role do you think that we have as wine professionals in uh, legislating taste and saying what, what people should be drinking and tasting, and what made you think that that at that time people were ready even because this is a big financial commitment time mm-hmm. commitment for you to, to go travel to mexico yeah i you know i don't i did i had no expectation that anybody was ready for this but mm-hmm. me and um that's how i've approached all of my projects you know when, I, when we first started making wine we started making grenache you know in 2000 when people were like what's grenache right and they're just like no, what do you mean what's grenache and they're like no what's in it i'm like there's not it's not anything in it it's just what it is um, and now you walk down the street and you see Andre Max Grenache shirts on everybody, and that, I think that's kind of awesome. So when when we started with mezcal, people were like, "Wait, mescaline? Is that legal?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, it's not mescaline. It's mezcal." I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, right." Like, "Oh, with the worm in it." And you're like, "No, no, no worm in good mezcal." And I'm like, "Well, did wait, did I throw that up in Tijuana once?" And like, "Well, you probably did," <laughs> but that's you know. So there was definitely an uphill battle in that that sense. But for me, I've always done projects that that i love and i think that much like being a sommelier if you love it it's going to infect people around you right and of course you have to be prepared to drink it all if no one's going to share your enthusiasm um but we've been fortunate to make enough for me to drink and for uh, all of our new friends to drink it too so it's been an amazing groundswell of support well it's something that you can definitely drink at uh at anfora at lartuzzi at delanima at all of our places it's uh thank you you know we don't carry a lot of uh, agave based spirits being italian restaurants but uh we do have sombra (laughs) it's awesome right on thank you um you know and in terms of uh, arbiter of taste and, and telling people what they should drink i think that with that question, it really brings to mind an idea that I have that it's not, you know, it's not about the superstar chef. It's not about the superstar sommelier. It's about the superstar guest, right? And whoever our guests are, they're, they're the stars. They're, they're paying and allowing us to do what we love, 
you know, if we don't love it, we shouldn't be doing it. But with that said, I think our job is more helping people to figure out what they love instead of telling them what they should love. You know, that, that's how I approach that question. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really great point. I mean, I would say that a, a sommelier's uh, main job is to be a, a person who provides hospitality, and yeah. you can know everything about every subsoil. It could be you could have, you know, passed the the MS exam on the first time, but if you can't provide hospitality to totally. people, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter at, at the end of the day. No, yeah. not a bit. Yeah, and all right, so we're going to take a quick, quick break. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Richard Betts and uh, some more Sombra Mezcal and a few other questions here on In the Drink. Thanks a lot. <laughs> White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. And we're back with In the Drink. I'm here with Richard Betts, uh, founder of Sombra Mezcal. We just spoke about his absolutely delicious terroir-specific mezcal, which you can find at all of our restaurants, at Anfora, at Delanima, um, at the soon-to-open La Picho. Um, And now I'm, I'm curious to hear about, because... Richard, you may just be the most interesting man in the world, traveling all over, involved in wine, running all sorts of crazy races, Mezcal in, in Mexico. Tell us about some of your other projects. Soon to be uh, author, published author, twice over. Tell, tell us about what you have going on. Uh, I'm blushing right now. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Um, yeah, we, uh, I'm, I'm psyched. I'm busy, uh, which is a good place for me. It keeps me mostly, uh, though not entirely, out of trouble. And have been, you know, much like with the Mezcal, so fortunate to have um, enthusiasm shared. You know, you just like dream something up wild and take a chance and it works and it gives you confidence to do it again. So um, amongst those things are uh, the Scratch and Sniff book, which um, is coming out next August, which for a busy, impatient kid like me just feels like an eternity. Um, But, you know, it's funny, they sell books like they sell fashion, right? It's fashion week and they're showing you stuff for a year from now or whatever, which for something that's supposed to be so current seems so strange and retro. But the publishing industry doesn't seem to be any different. So um, nonetheless, we have to wait till next year. But uh, the book is, um, it's really a kid's book for adults. 
that, uh, that I've written, and it's, uh, it's 20 pages, so 10 spreads, hard cardboard pages, like when you were a kid. It's like a brownie pan-sized book. And you really scratch and sniff your way through these 10 pages to understanding what you like, why you like it, and therefore what you should drink. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it, you know? And, it, and it's not like, oh my God, how do you capture the smell of Cabernet? No, that's not it. It's like understanding, like, Red wine. Okay, so you've got red fruits or black mm. fruits, and certain grapes have more of one than another. And then what does oak smell like? Well, it smells like vanilla, and it smells like dill in certain cases. It smells like coconut in certain cases. And those are smells we all know, but you can scratch and sniff those and then you know, reacquaint yourself with them and decide, like, you know what? I like red fruits better than black fruits. And you know what? I like oak. And in fact, I like the dill, so therefore I like American oak. And then we understand what the earthy component is, right? And you're like, you know what? I'm cool with a little funk. So then it just adds up, like, okay, I like red fruits, I like American oak, I like funk, so therefore drink Lopez Rioja, right? It's that, it's that sort of math, and, and what, choose what your sort adventure. Of, what sort of smell do you have to uh, replicate the funk? I remember a, a, there was a Scratch and Sniff New York City Smells book that, that, there, <laughs> that I remember having that as a kid and thinking yeah. that it was just so much fun and so disgusting at the same time. Totally. But what, what do you use to replicate the funk in, in wine? Uh, potting soil is, is mm-hmm. probably the... Well, we'll see. But that, that's the one that uh, we have earmarked for it. You know? And then there's some, some fun things, like we have some herbs in there, and I'm going to use pot, of course, you know, just see who catches the joke. But um, it'll be, it's, it's a good book. It's fun. That's really fun. I think one of the great things about that book is that it helps people to have a good vocabulary when, when trying to describe wine. Totally. Um, if you can say that I like red fruit and I don't like oaky flavors and I want a red wine... Uh, that'll be that's just way further than most people are totally uh, are, are along and so I think that the main thing that keeps a lot of people from drinking the wines that they like is just not having the vocabulary to describe what they like absolutely they'll right. know it if you have two glasses in front of them like oh I like that one more than that one totally but they don't always know why right and you know I think one piece I'm really excited about with the book is that we're using vocabulary that already exists. You know, it's not about wine speak. Wine speak's just a, a stupid idea. You know, it's it, that's that's exclusive. And I'm about wine being inclusive. You know, and more people drinking more wine all the time. One of the things I love that you always say is that uh, that wine should be a grocery and not a luxury. And not a luxury. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Tell us what that, what you mean by that. Totally. That that's a that's my ism. I really learned and lived and articulated for myself after spending. Um, a few years in Italy, and there I went. I went young and didn't know really anything about cooking or dining, or, or certainly not drinking wine um, on a regular basis. And when you're there, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners have been there. I know you spent a ton of time there, and, and so this isn't new news. But but when I was, you know, a young man, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And the table is never truly set until there's wine upon it at lunch, at dinner, every single day poured out of a pitcher into a tumbler doesn't matter wine's got to be on the table and it was that appreciation of just the you know the regularity of it that's where i was like this this is this is the grocery it's not a luxury it's not like a, it's a special occasion or it's friday night or whatever it's like no man it's tuesday lunch you know have a glass and that that was so meaningful you know it really and from there it just extends to really enjoying life and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't mean like cop and a buzz but i mean just like being relaxed enough to even have a glass of wine at lunch like cut the iced tea just get after it. Have a glass of wine. Chill out. It's good for you, you know? Um, so that's, that's, that's really what that embodies for me. It's just, just good living. Just good living. Yeah. It's a, 
It's a Bobby Stuckyism, isn't it? <laughs> Coloradoism, yeah. Everyone, <laughs> Colorado's good living. Um, okay, and then you have a uh, so we have Bobby Stuckey's, uh, not Bobby Stuckey, Richard Pat's, uh, uh The what's the name of your your wine smelling scratch and sniff book? Oh, it's the Essential Scratch and Sniff Guide to Wine Expertise. Okay, yeah. And then the other book that you have coming out, can you talk about that, or is that too pre? No, no other book yet. No other book no yet. No other book right. yet. He's always working on something. Always though. working on something. All yeah. right. And then what about with your with your wine endeavors? Yeah, I'm super excited about that. Um, you know, we uh, I feel so fortunate to have, have created these three brands based purely on my enthusiasm for weird stuff. Like, again, Grenache a while ago. And co-founded Scarpetta with Bobby and Lachlan. And uh, then did this thing called CC, which is a really interesting negotiant project in California that basically took $400 California Cabernet and repackaged it for 19 bucks. Same stuff. and crazy. It was an amazing opportunity. Um, and those are all now behind me. We've um, moved on uh, happily in every case and uh, you know, for everybody involved, I think. So um, time's up I'm, I'm off the bench and I, and I get to play again so I'm super excited about that and that whole like sitting on the bench thing that non-compete that you have to do that's a brutal brutal time everyone's like oh dude you get a year off like go sit on the beach like no way it's like stir crazy pulling my hair out you know what are you gonna do and then you want to do it but you can't do it and so um, fast forward to now what I'm doing is uh, I'm making some Bordeaux and I'm super excited about that I mean you can't see me through the microphone, but there's some gray hair up here. <laughs> and so I'm certainly old enough to and remember. And a grin to grin smile. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Totally. <laughs> um, I'm old enough to remember when Bordeaux was affordable and when we drank it and when it was good. And it wasn't just about, you know, some brand or some mark or some name, which you'd have to pay a thousand euros for on premiere two years before you get the wine and 20 years before you can drink it. That's just idiocy. Like, I don't know. Who, I don't know who that's for, but it's not for me. And so first America turned its back on Bordeaux and the Bordelais went to China and now the Chinese have turned their back on Bordeaux and Bordeaux is the largest appellation in France so there's lots of great material and I, I work where my enthusiasm intersects with opportunity so I have an enthusiasm for, for Bordeaux and I now see opportunity in Bordeaux and, um, and have realized, realized the opportunity um, I'm working with the Tianpont family these are the guys that, that make some of those aforementioned uh, very expensive wines like Vouchetteau Sertin and Le Pain and blah, blah, blah. But um, they're super smart, super interesting, forward-thinking people. And they get it. And so they've welcomed me with open arms. Um, and, you know, they own, you know, from Le Pain all the way down to things like uh, Puigoreau, their family estate out in the Côte de Franc. And importantly, the, the farming, the idea of, of how they take care of the, the top end thing is really goes all the way down to, to the bottom end thing in the Cote de Franc. Um, and that rigor is really attractive to me, right? You know, when, when we were working in Hermitage in the Rhone, you would get like 30 hectoliters a hectare just because of the slope, right? And in Bordeaux, if you don't do anything, you're going to end up with like 75 hectoliters a hectare. And of course, a grapevine only has so much to say, so you're just diluting it by like three times almost. So these guys, through super rigorous and intense farming practices, are achieving these same similar yields that we saw in Hermitage, but just you know purely through being great farmers. And that was that was the first attraction to me. Um, 
So tell, tell me about what you think. Uh, how would you how would you judge two farmers, and what, what what do you think would make one farmer a great farmer, as opposed to just a good farmer, a normal farmer, not not a good farmer? Right. I mean, for me, um, you know, there's obviously some words we're all much uh, more familiar with these days in America, like organic and biodynamic, and for sure those things um, are important. But it you know it goes beyond a, you know a canned term like that. It to me it's it's much more about you know first and, and foremost waking up in the morning and thinking I got to make the very best thing I can right and how do you achieve that um, and when, when you have that mentality you know organic or biodynamic I think are just part of the process but it's also just being relentless and you know thinking about it every day and if you know you go and pull leaves and you got to go back the next day and pull more or you go and you you know use copper in the vineyard which is loud and still under organic whatever um and you got to use more the next day. You go and you do it. It's not like, well, I did it, and whatever happens, happens. And so I was in Bordeaux earlier this summer, and it had been quite wet and cool, and, and, and some people are going to end up with nothing through pure laziness. Like, there's going to be no harvest. Um, and then there are people that are actually going to have, you know, vintage potentially like 2,000, you know, really, really quite good. Um, so, so that's the difference. It's just it's waking up with, you know, fire in your heart and a willingness to hustle. And that's the difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer and I think really almost between, you know, a human being that's interesting to me and mm. who's not. That's just like I say. I mean, I think that the, the farmer is more interesting and more important than, than the, the vintage, the, you know, the, the vineyard and the terroir the totally. year any the grape anything like that because you need someone who is dedicated and connected to the land and respects that land absolutely and, and is interested in telling people what it has to say in order to interpret that totally and for that reason we should buy their wine every year not just in you know quote-unquote good vintages and avoid it in bad vintages you know i i support farmers and friends i don't you know i don't support this whole vintage mentality it's like these guys do great work and whatever they did this year i'm in i want to check it out you know Okay, so so what price point is this going to be at? So uh, we're making two wines. Um, this is under the label called uh, San Glen Glen, which means essentially when pigs fly, right? And uh, which I think is apropos for me working in Bordeaux, yeah. making it cheap. Um, so we're making a really uh, intense, um, almost entirely Merlot, although I won't say it on the label, but it's uh, it's Cote de Franc is the appellation. It'd be nineteen bucks, uh, and it's it's special. Um, I'm not just saying that because it's my wine. I wouldn't do it if, if we weren't able to achieve something special. And then we're making uh, uh, saint Grand Cru. That'll be about 30 bucks, um, and is smoking. I'm super psyched. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm excited to taste it. I mean, Bordeaux is not having a moment in uh, no, not New York at City at all. Not at all. Not uh, at all. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I, I think it's because it just got so egregiously expensive, mm-hmm. right? And then that coupled with the fact that there's so much great wine out there in the world and of course new york's the the epicenter of all that everything that's going to happen happens here first right you see it here first and so there's just so much more choice that like why would you tolerate expensive bordeaux you know when you can you know even just go drink raffo franc out of the loire like that's delicious you know and tenth of the price of some of these things so that's why so you said that you like to look for uh for for opportunities where your enthusiasm and some sort of really great you know, opportunity sort of coincide. Yes. Where is there in the world that maybe your enthusiasm is way, way, way super high, but you don't think that there's any opportunity yet? Is there, is there anywhere? Mexico. Wine. Wine Mexican in Mexico. Wine. Yeah. I really, I, you know, I keep hearing about these crazy old Grenache and Carignan vineyards in Baja. Um, so I'm making a trek soon. In fact, I've, I've, um, 
I've reached out to a number of folks with limited success down there. I'm not <laughs> sure that they even think there's any opportunity. But um, it's just all inland from Ensenada. And mm-hmm. so it, I think it's a lot like what we see around Santa Barbara and, and just north of there, um, where it's actually quite cool, right? So a lot, a lot of marine influence. And if you've got these amazing old sand-grown Grenache vineyards, that's, that's my calling card. I'm, I'm in. I'm down with that. So um, I'll get there eventually, but uh, I, I'm certain the world's not, not ready for that. Well, what, what is it that you love about Grenache so much? Uh, it, I, I also share an enthusiasm for it. Yeah, it's the warm climate analogy of Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. You know, it's soft, silky, sexy, seductive. It's all the good S words, but just with a little bit more girth, you know? Um, I, it's, it's all about that sex appeal. I, I'm easy in that respect, you know, just fall for it head over heels every time. Yeah, so... I have the uh, the New York Marathon coming up in about a month and a half, and right every on. time I see Richard uh, being extraordinarily fit, I I think, oh man, I need to pick up my training. Uh, do you change your uh, your drinking habits when you're training for a big race? No, <laughs> <laughs> you just run more, right? So you burn it off. Um, I change them probably you know the last three or four days before, just to try to dial it back a little bit. But, you know, at the same time, you got to live your life, right? And you and I are just in this business. just is what it is. So I'd rather run more than drink less. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Do you have any big races coming up? Um, you know what? I did, uh, I did a fun 50K this summer um, with a ton of climbing in the mountains uh, in Colorado and, uh, and have not run since. I've, I've been in the gym, like total, just turned it off and, and turned on, on the weightlifting. I don't know. I'm not sure... I say that and I like look at myself like wow who's that guy like it's 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 an odd idea but it feels amazing really yeah so it's just, I think it's one of those natural breaks um, but with that said and consistent with how I I, I live my life we're, we're doing a race we're we're actually putting on a charity race uh, in fact you should come um, in Oaxaca in February we're going to do a 50k um, and some of the world's greatest uh, and you know, most famous amazing uh, ultra runners are coming. Um, and we're all going to commit to raising money for the school in the in the town where we work in the middle wow. of nowhere. Yeah. yeah, wow, that's fantastic. You so should fi- come. So for those of you trying to compute, the fifty k is about thirty miles. Yeah, about thirty three miles. About thirty three miles. And it'll have probably ten thousand vertical climb somewhere in there. It'll cumulative over the day. So it's it's a big run at eight thousand feet. Do you have insurance if I uh, die? No, no. <laughs> that's the thing. That's one of those things that we're going to make you sign. Like, yeah, you could really hurt yourself, and we might never ever find you. <laughs> it's, it's it's truly in the wilds of you know of Mexico. That's crazy. Yeah, you should come. Oh man, that sounds like a blast. That sounds like a complete blast. Plus, you're raising money for a good cause. So with that said, yeah, I got to start running, man. That's in mm-hmm. February. <laughs> I got to get it together. So what else are you up to while you're here in the city? Um, I'm about to taste those first vintages of Bordeaux, which I'm super excited. Uh, samples arrived today, so I'm going to go taste those right now. Um, I go home tonight, mm-hmm. but uh, it's sort of exciting news for me, at least, is it looks like we've rented an apartment here. So, Whoa! Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, so we're going to do the do the dual Colorado, and uh, it looks like Park Slope. We'll see. So we're all we're all coming in uh, January. That's fantastic. Are there any restaurants that you always make sure to hit up? Do you have, are you a regular at anywhere here in New York? Bohemian of all the places I love have you been there on Great Jones it's like a Japanese living yes, room yes I have been there yeah and they've just become good friends and it's so yeah. chill in there I love those guys I love they have a uh, just this huge roasted fish with all these roasted yeah, veggies exactly it's so simple but it is like crazy delicious yeah 
And you feel like you're sitting in someone's living room. a wacky restaurant. Uh-huh. That is one of the wackier places. Totally. And you, the people who go in there are complete uh, wacky, too, like mm-hmm. you and me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they, it's just, it's exactly. just like a really interesting, very serene totally. kind of place. Oh, that's fine. That is not what I was expecting at all. But that's, yeah. that's I mean, cool you know, your days out here are just like so full mm-hmm. contact. And it's sometimes really nice to just snuggle into that place and... You know, and just, just relax, just, just totally chill. Do you have some favorite drinking spots in the city? Yeah, lots of favorite drinking spots. I mean, of course, PDT and Maya Well at the top of that list. Um, you know, Jim Jim makes insane cocktails, and I think Phil's Red Ant River Swizzle is maybe one of my favorite drinks I've ever had ever. Um, I could drink those all day long. So, uh, but you know, there's there's no shortage of great watering holes. Yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. And if you guys don't know, Maya Well is a a mezcal specific bar in the in the East Village, and I, I think I think I think it's one of the best. I think East Village is really having its cocktail totally. moment right now with Maya Well, uh, PDT, Death and Company. I love this little bar called Amoria Margo. I haven't uh, been yet. Bitters. Okay. Bitter. It's all about bitters there. Uh, and there's a gin specific bar there. Gin. I think it's called. Mm-hmm. What's it called? It's a, well, it's a gin bar. It's, it's fantastic. And then the Wren. Uh, we just had Chrissy on uh, uh, last week, and the Wren is a very farmer's market-inspired bar as awesome. well. And it's just fantastic. Um, well, Richard, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. I appreciate uh, having and me. And everyone out there, look out for, for Sombra Mezcal. You can, see it, uh, you can see it all around the city at great bars like Mayoel and, and Anfora. And, uh, and look out for some of Richard's new projects coming up as well. Thanks again, and hope to, hear, hope to see you guys next time on In the Drink. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli from Heritage Radio's In the Drink. On October 21st, join me and some of the most talented chefs, bartenders, and performers in New York at Not My Day Job, a cocktail and culinary showcase. Food and cocktails from restaurants like Shake Shack, The Meatball Shop, Mark Forgione, Lartuzzi, The Wren, Colicchio & Sons, Macau Trading Company, and more will be available from 1 to 5 p.m. at the Prince George Ballroom. Tickets are only $50 and will benefit the 4th Arts Block, Greenwich House, and Urban Arts Partnership and are available at notmydayjob2012.eventbrite.com. Hope to see you there.